Monk, Arizona Wine Podcast by Cody Vladimir Burkett. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Cody Vladimir Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. I'm here with John Scarborough and Corey Turnbull from Arizona Stronghold and Burning Tree and Cellar Dwellers slash Fire Mountain, respectively. See, all, kind of, all those places. <laughs> all of those places with all of the things. So we're mostly focusing mostly on Arizona Stronghold today. Uh, we've got some really cool stuff here. We've got uh, the first single varietal Gewürztraminer I've seen outside of Skull Valley. We've got a really nice Muscat. We've got some barrel samples that look like a lot of fun. You bet. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess I'll start. I, I, for us, uh, this Gewürztraminer was pretty special from the get-go. Uh, uh, we did. Uh, we got this off our Bonita Springs site. Relatively low yield. Um, we brought it in, and in lieu of uh, destemming it and pressing it uh, right away. We actually, I'm sorry, not destemming it, in lieu of pressing it right away, we destemmed it and then put it in our barrel room with a chiller for a 24 hour period for a little extended maceration. I think that helped the aromatics. Um, then we pressed it 100% stainless steel aged. Uh, so very uh, floral, um, classic, but even more rose water characters. Uh, neat stuff. Yeah, it actually makes me think of uh, Holy Week in the Orthodox Church because you have the priest that runs around on Holy Friday just spraying everything with rose water and holy water. And, yeah, your clothes smell really, really good when you come home that night, and that reminds me of that nose. Yeah, I mean, with, with the way we make our whites, you know, we inhibit the malolactic, so our whites are very crisp and refreshing. Um, and I think very ageable as well. Um, I think this is uh, cradle robin at its best. I think we're. Uh, it, I think this stuff can age a good four or five years before it really starts putting on weight, which I notice a lot with uh, wines that you know are where malolactic's inhibited. They tend yeah. to age really nice. Yeah, and then of course you have Gewürztraminer because of that high acidity can age well, regardless. I right. Mean, the oldest one I've ever had. I think it was at your birthday party, uh, Burning Tree, was was like a 1970-something Gewurz Chimino Late Harvest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was uh, delicious. Yeah, it was a Selection de Grand Noble we had from, uh, I think it was Thon Vineyard from uh, uh, Zind Humbricht. It was classic. And uh, and really, you know, with for me and Arizona Whites, in my experience with them, when they, they get older, they tend to put on this kind of Alsatian-like weight, almost honeyed character. So... Like personally, I'm gonna to try to buy like a case or two of this wine, and I'm gonna sit on it for like four or five years, and I think that's really where they hit their stride and they get really good. Yeah, I've been hoarding Malvasias because everyone knows I love Malvasia. Blah blah blah. Um, <laughs> from Stronghold, actually, to do a vertical, I've found the 2010, I've found a 2009, I've got the 11, the 12, both of the 13s, and then I'm gonna wait until 14 comes out, and then 15. Man. Very strong. Malvasia is always very strong grape for us here um, from both sides, from the old Arizona Stronghold Vineyard and Bonita Springs. So, <clears throat> killer stuff. But this Gewurz is amazing. It's got this like, little hint of orange oil and on the palate. It's really pretty. Oh, wow. Then you've also got that really crisp, like it's like biting into a fresh apple. Mm-hmm. I've just pulled off the tree. And I'm remembering when I was in Boston a couple of years ago, 
Um, one of the things I was dragged to kicking and screaming, okay, not so much kicking and screaming, but I was dragged to, was apple picking. I thought it'd be the most boring thing ever until I started to sample the apples that I was picking and taking, you know, taking note of the different flavors of each one. And then it became fun and interesting yeah, because I'm sure. like, oh, okay, this flavor reminds me of this wine and this flavor reminds me of that wine and so on and so forth. Of course, I don't remember what any of those types of apples were now. <laughs> yeah, when it would actually be really useful. There's a billion different varietals of apples as well. So heirloom apples were crazy. Yeah, I, and then also you know like Bonita Springs, it's a cool site. Uh, so like our Malvasia, all the whites tend to have this really nice um, minerality in the palate. Yeah, Bonita Springs is one of the few vineyards that I've actually never seen or set foot on myself. Yeah, it's definitely cooler. It's up above. Uh, it's uh, above Wilcox, actually, just over the Graham County line. So it's definitely cooler than most of the vineyards down south, outside of maybe Calibri, which is you know, way high in the mountains. But What are the unique uh, issues that you face in Benita versus some of the other vineyards you've experienced? Well, we have, it, you know, cooler varietals do better there. Um, every year we tend to have problems like, I, I don't think it's the best Rhone site for every year. I mean, we just planted some Syrah there and Mavedra, and we're hoping for the best, but I think the Syrah be hit or miss depending on what the vintage is like. Uh, when it's when it's good, it'll be great, more of like a, a cool Rhone vintage. But for the most part, I think it's going to have trouble, you know, getting those ripe characters up there. It's a great, great Bordeaux site, great aromatic white site. We we see our strengths in Cab Merlot, Malvasia, Gewürztraminer, uh, Muscat, uh, which we got a little bit. Although this year, I mean, it, it fell into the uh, the same. The same uh, frost pitfall that you saw a lot in Elgin and yeah yeah so we lost probably about forty percent of the the vineyard this year so we're tough uh, hit. that was a tough hit yeah we're only getting maybe a quarter ton of Gewürztraminer Muscat Riesling so um, which is unfortunate because I really wanted to back this up and the Muscat up but you know it, at the end of the day winemaking is mostly just farming and just dealing with the uh, what Mother Nature gives you. So it'll be a concentrated year, but you know, you're not going to do much with a quarter ton of each of these. Yeah. Probably just helping to blend aromatically. But you know, also, I, I think, uh, like the dessert wine too, I think this conversion actually gets better when it's a little warmer. I think t people serve their whites too cold. I agree entirely. Especially restaurants. It's hard for me to buy wine at restaurants for two reasons. One is... I can't control serving temperature. Others that usually restaurants are marking up their wines dramatically. Oh yeah, I'd almost rather spend the money on ingredients to make that meal myself, and then have more money to play with for wine than the other way around. Drink whiskey at restaurants. Yeah, <laughs> whiskey or beer tends to be Yeah, that's the go-to. Yeah, that's what we generally do. So, how did you guys all get involved in the wine industry here? Kind of a similar story. Yeah, we both have kind of a similar background in getting into the industry itself. Um, we both worked at uh, restaurants. Um, I don't know about Corey, but I started dishwashing, bussing tables. Busser. Busser. When I was like You know, 14. bartender, ended up managing a place. Um, Corey and I actually used to hang out back in the day when we both uh, managed restaurants. And, you know, that after after shift crowd at the bar, you mm -hmm. know, we'd end up closing bars down all the time. And, uh, you know, I think we both just kind of fell into the industry. Um, in the restaurant industry, we had worked around lots of uh, 
you know, pretty extensive wine lists and helped create a lot of uh, pretty uh, amazing lists yeah, in, I think in Sedona area. And uh, I, I came across John Marcus when I worked at the Hard and Lighting Cafe, and uh, that's actually where I first started um, kind of weed-eating the vineyard and cleaning barrels and doing grunt work, and it's like, yeah, this is a lot of fun, and I kept going with it, and next thing you know, he had me and a good buddy of mine planting a vineyard for him down, down in Wilcox. And it was the Crop Circle Vineyard? Or? Yeah, and uh, then I ended up, you know, traveling around a bit, and then ended up at uh with eric over at page springs um worked there for about six or seven years and started fire mountain and cellar dwellers and ended up back here at stronghold and just kind of doing everything and gun hired gun <laughs> and we're, we're a collective here that's for sure um my story's similar you know um been around a lot of fine dining restaurants and ran a couple wine lists I got a you know my base sommelier pen I was always into wine I think I think most people that really got into wine around that time I think there was just a kind of a wine revolution in the Verde Valley and I think a lot of people just gravitated toward the Page Springs area uh, I started working at Page Springs back in you know Joe and Bill and I think it was before you even came out there mm -hmm. and I would work for free in my only I made a wine t-shirt off eBay that said we'll work for wine and and so I was, you know, kind of like the, the, the cellar bitch. I'd clean drains and move heavy stuff. And I would work from like, you know, just during harvest in the morning until I had to go to work. I did that like six days a week during harvest just because I loved it. And, uh, you know, I became good friends with everyone out there. I started um, driving to California and just hanging out. And we had some epic guys nights for like Maynard's birthday and stuff. So, I mean, the early days were, you know, before all the structure and hoopla and like the movie and all those things were a lot of fun um but it's been a yeah it's just been a transition and i run in the tasting rooms and then eventually i've always wanted to come be in the cellar so last year was my first full-time year in the cellar uh, at arizona stronghold but before that i personally was making wine at page springs and a little bit out here as well starting burning tree and kind of launching that brand so wine's always been it's not really a job it's more like a community and a um about friendships and camaraderie and those kind of things, and that's really why I'm into wine. And I also couldn't afford my habit, so I had to start making my own stuff. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm discovering that on my own, too. You don't make as much either, <laughs> yeah. so it kind of works out. Right. It's a wash, but it is. man, it's fun. It is. <laughs> yeah, I'm both looking forward to and having nightmares about Crush, because Crush is coming. Mm -hmm. um, Yes. And you were saying earlier, it's probably what two, three weeks away for the yeah, first. Yeah, uh, it looks like uh, we're we're a ways off for most of our things. We're just starting to go through Verasion on most stuff. But uh, uh, talking with Chris Turner, uh, I'm gonna be purchased personally. I'm gonna buy some uh, Albuel uh, Memorial Chardonnay, and they said it's like already at 16, and we're looking. 19. Yeah, it's probably at 19 now. So we're probably looking at a week and a half, two weeks. So I think that's that's going to be the first one in, and then we'll start seeing the normal uh, things coming in, like uh, Fort Bowie Chardonnay. And yeah, I was going to say, isn't Fort Bowie usually the first fruit in the state commercially? Usually, yeah, yeah it tends to ripen. It's a bit warmer there, um, but you know, if they're getting numbers like that, you know, it trickles in, and then it it's like a wave, a tidal wave, and then you just try to 
keep your head above water, and then it starts slow, slowly starts to slow down. We had a very warm down. winter and a pretty wet spring, and you know all this hurricane activity is keeping a lot of moisture down there. So that might you know you never know what Mother Nature is going to throw at you, and it could either all come in once or it could come in a nice steady flow, which never happens. But yeah. there's there's wishful thinking. I guess thinking. last year was kind of the closest that had been to steady flows because you'd have well someone was saying that like they'd have. Apparently they were one of the smaller videos, like, oh yeah, we'd get one grape and then the storms would come and then we get one other grape and... Yeah. Yeah, for us it was, we got inundated um, because we launched a, a second brand and we got inundated with French Columbard and Chenin Blanc. And I think within... That's the Provisioner, within, right? Yeah, the Provisioner White. So the last year we got inundated so much that we didn't have any room. We were actually considering stacking our punch down bins to and then unstack them every time to do punch downs and uh i think we have like i think we got like 50 tons within six days or something so it was just one of the we were just pretty roughed up um and then a rain came and then we were just like thank god that rain came uh so it's like you don't want it to rain you know because you don't want to see the the things associated with those yeah and then the um, next week we were bitching about rot so. yeah so it's, <laughs> you can't win yeah you, you can't, can't win, win. But I, I think we were better off getting through that bulk before we could take more fruit, you know. But so you never know. Going back uh, a step, tell us a little bit about the Provisioner. Um, because I've been seeing it floating around in stores. Is it just going to be white or is it going to be a red? We well? did we did both a white and a red this year. Um, and the Provisioner is a brand uh, that uh, ownership and Eric, they kind of cooked up and basically it... it fits a niche in the market um, uh, where we're we're producing it and selling it and hopefully the market should sell it for anywhere from ten to twelve dollars restaurants you know five dollars a glass and and uh, we just feel that there's not much in terms of Arizona wines out there that cost that much um, and we think we can make a pretty good wine for that amount um, so it's almost like a second label because we don't we don't keep any any of it for ourselves, except for marketing purposes. We won't sell it in the tasting rooms or anything. It's just it pretty much goes directly to wholesales to, to, to quench yeah. fine wines. So it's starting to hit the market, and we're excited to see what the first one does. And uh, I think this year we're expanding it to five or six thousand cases, and then we'll add on a pink this year. Oh, nice! Yeah. So we're. Uh, what are you thinking of doing for the pink? Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a white base with a little bit of red. Uh, so probably Shannon then. I'm thinking Shannon will make up the majority of it just because the aromatics uh, that we get off the um, Shannon. Uh, I think it'll work better instead of the Columbard. I think Columbard plays nice for the white because of its minerality. Minerality, and it has a really nice mouthfeel too, I've noticed. Right. It just makes that white heavy. Right. It's interesting when you get 30 tons of it at a time, though. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's why we're doing it because it's got such a, there's such a big block down there. I mean, last year we brought a bunch of Columbard, and I think we. We made a bunch of it that went directly to a distillery as well. Yeah. They just distilled a lot of it. Um, Are they going to be bringing it back for use in ports? Or? Uh, no, it wasn't for us. It was just for their distillate. I don't know what they're doing, if they're barrel aging it or what, but it was a distillery huh. in Phoenix, and they took like 1,500 gallons or something. That's not too bad. So it was a big, big, you know, throw some crazy yeast on it, get it fermented, and get it out of here kind of, you know. It wasn't like it was a gentle process. Because yeah. we knew where it was going. Someone went to Gary from Village of Elgin. Yeah, he yeah. well, did he do Malvasia? No, it was French Columbard. Oh, it was Columbard. It's really nice. He's got a 
like a young brandy, you know? No. Oh, um, yeah. I haven't actually tried much mm, of, uh, well, mm, I've only drank one of his wines, period. That was, mm. uh, I can't remember what it was in Italian, but the name translated to the young wine of spring. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was pretty good. I need to, when I was last down in Elgin, I didn't get a chance to visit there. That was one of the two I had to ax off because his wines are not too hard to get. No. And I had to kind of focus when I was down there in January on, okay, um, which wineries can I never find yeah. to review? Okay, Hannah's Hill, okay, finally, because they don't export up here anywhere. Yeah, I know they have Phoenix only, but... Even though they have 14 tasting rooms now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't get out that much. Yeah. And this is it. So what goes into, and this is going to be kind of question directed to both of you guys. What's your approach versus Stronghood? Wow, slow clap. What's your approach <laughs> from Stronghold fruit versus your personal labels fruit? Um, for Corey, it'd be Burning Tree. For you, would be uh, Fire Mountain slash Cellar Dwellers. Yeah, um, Fire Mountain and Cellar Dwellers are two completely different, you know, kind of stylistic choices um fire mountain i tend to um kind of make things a little softer um more approachable mass appeal if you will um cellar dwellers really kind of red fruit driven low alcohol um and basically just kind of in the winemaking process itself um you know i'm sourcing fruit from a lot of the same places that everybody else is and uh you know, it's just kind of how I treat it, and there's smaller batches, so I have a little more, you know, control and time to take care of those type of things. Burning Tree is kind of a similar story. For me, Burning Tree is uh, foremost about quality. You know, there's a lot of vineyards that I like in the state, and every year, you know, there's not much of that to get. Uh, you know, there are things that are starting to open up now, but uh, historically, Burning Tree, I, you know, for me, it's all line in the sand. I, I, uh, I drive quite a bit to California to get some fruit because um, I like certain attributes that California could give, Pinot Noir, you know, those kind of things. Um, so Burning Tree, you know, I, I do a little bit, you know, extended macerations. I do, I try to get a little more extraction, a little bit more new French oak or uh, a little bit more new oak in general uh, across the board, longer aging time. Uh, really site-specific kind of wines. I, I've kind of narrowed that down to, to vineyards that I like a lot. Um, Burning Tree is just kind of like the geeky side of me, you know, just trying to make wines that reflect other wines that have inspired me over the years. So that's, if you ever go to Burning Tree, there's, you know, there's a Cote du Rhone blend, or there's a Cote Roti kind of style wine, there's Bordeaux style. So it's just... Uh, it's just uh, a way to keep me interested without running away. <laughs> Run away! Run away! Yeah, but I mean, uh, you know, just make the best wine we can. That's always what I've been about, and uh, and that's true for every brand we make, not just Burning Tree or Fire Mountain. I mean, Stronghold, every client we have here. It's How important. many clients do you have at Stronghold, if I may ask? It's kind of a revolving door sometimes. I mean, uh, anywhere from Seven six to ten. To ten, yeah. yeah. So it just depends. I think uh, this year some clients are going, some are coming in. Uh, I think overall, uh, if you you know take provisioner out of the equation, you take stronghold out of the equation. I think probably thirty-five to forty percent of our production here is is client wines. 
Can I ask who you're ranking line for? Uh, I don't know. I mean, is that something we should put on the podcast? I mean, I, the only problem is I, I'd have to talk to those people. Okay. Yeah, because you never know. Because a lot of people say, you know, they, uh, Burning Tree and Fire Mountain. Sell <laughs> 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 uh, there's some other ones, you know. But, you know, I, I don't know if I'm at liberty to kind of go into that. Um, I don't know if there's confidentiality things that I'm stepping into, you know. And we've been doing some small batch stuff for some restaurants around as well. Which is kind of cool, you know, we produce a label for them and they get to sell their kind of house wine. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, we've what done... Restaurants uh, restaurants? Yeah, you can ask that. Uh, Postino's, we've done some wine for um, their big restaurant down in the downtown area. I think they have maybe six restaurants in the valley now. I think so. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're starting to grow quite the a bit. The worst date I've ever been on in recent memory was at Postino's. <laughs> the wine was good. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. <laughs> We're well, currently doing a project for La Berge. Um, you know, and just kind of putting it out there, you know, it's one barrel, two barrel kind of things we can do a specialty wine for, you know, a house pour. So. Yeah, hand-edged bottles and waxed it. I mean, they're, they're spending quite a bit on, I mean, good wines. I mean, it's not like, um, it's the swill stuff. I mean, they're they're going all out, and I think it's pretty cool what they're doing. Um, but Le has always been pretty neat. I think, I think we're just trying to get free meals. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, the food there at Marriage is great. I was there for a friend's wedding, and that was where the post-wedding feast was. And Ooh, excellent. I got to pick the wines because I asked specifically, is there a, is price an option? And they said, no, go crazy. And so I'm like, okay. So we're starting That's with the San Ricardo <laughs> We're going to go to the Lozen. Uh, we're out of the Lozen. Okay. Um, oh, Sagrantino. Let, let's go with this. Have any of you guys had a Sagrantino? No. <laughs> Here, have it, yeah. That's a loaded gun right there. <laughs> well, let me see that wine list, sir. <laughs> yeah, that being that being said, we're not going to be making wine for Arby's anytime soon. Well, I don't think Arby's <laughs> would want to serve wine. Rosé <laughs> and a Reuben is actually yeah. not a bad combo. Yeah, well, sure. Rosé and a beef and cheddar. Right. Yeah. All right. So you want to go to the next one? Yeah. Let's. Uh, right. I like that rich tomato. It's great. When is that out in the tasting room? Where is it out already? I think it's just getting released. Uh, I'd reach out to Kevin. Um, you know, he kind of has an idea on. We get it in boxes for him, and then he releases it. I have a, I have a feeling that it's either out or it's coming out very soon. Okay. Well, I think it was in the summer white release for Arizona Stronghold. So this is one of our bigger blends. Uh, this is the. Uh, 2014 Nachis, still in tank, uh, about 47% Syrah, um, I think it's 35% Grenache, 10 Mavedra, and 8 Petite. It's really struck me as interesting that everyone here in your Rhone blends in Arizona is using Petite Syrah for that tannic base instead right. of actually trying to plant Carignan. Yeah, but I think the problem with the, the there's plenty of things that Petite bring to, bring to the table. I think color is a big thing as well. Um, I mean, Grenache, as you know, in Arizona tends to be very light. Yeah. Um, Syrah can be hit or miss. It can be very concentrated, or it could be kind of on the lighter side. I think just a touch of Petite helps kind of fill not only tannin. I mean, on Carign are we planting Carignan? I don't even know. No. The only place I know that's planted Carignan is uh, the college. I think that's Eric it. might have some at Calibri. It's going in, yeah. I think so. Well, yeah. That's good. Hooray. Just went in maybe 
last week. I'm not sure. Not 100% on that. Don't quote me. Well, it's on the podcast. Oh, man, I've been quoted. (laughs) People out there can quote you. like a cherry um, it's like you're sucking on two Jolly Ranchers at the same time it's got that cherry Jolly Rancher and a little bit of almost a watermelon mm. Jolly Rancher too yeah, it's a really nice spotty great acidity I get a little tannin from the oak I think there's a little oak on that yeah great soft kind of finish though you know I think this fits right nicely into what Nachi's has been before and uh, pretty tasty now, cheese is one of the wines that I consistently recommend for people looking for something to drink while they're barbecuing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think that the qualities of this wine and the flavor profile works really well with like a nice rack of ribs mm-hmm. or even a cheeseburger. Mushrooms. Yeah, mushrooms or bacon. Definitely has the. Why not both? Yeah, right. mushrooms, bacon, cheeseburger on ribs. <laughs> You gotta put the ribs on as, as the bread in the sandwich. Right. But this is, you know, this kind of classic Code de Rome kind of characters. I mean, I think um, definitely black cherry is probably the most prevalent kind of fruit profile. But there's a little er- there's a little earthiness there, and there's a little bit of spice on the back end too. We used a, um, a couple barrels of some Mavedra from Calibri in this, which I think definitely bumped the, the spice, spice a little. Yeah, bit, which I've... helped. I've been consistently surprised at the high levels of spice in Calibri fruit. Oh, everything! Yeah, I mean that pepper. I mean that uh, vineyard pepper. That vineyard is that basically pepper, yeah. I, <laughs> everything I get off that vineyard. And when it comes to the reds, not so much in the whites, but the reds always tend to have this lipstick kind of waxy, and then uh, white pepper or black pepper, depending on the varietal. It's been a long time since I've had any whites from Calibri. The Roussan's strong. The Viognier's no longer. They pulled it out. I think they, I think they're grafting over um, Marsan, um, and I want to say, maybe uh, Claret. I don't know. Claret I, I, would be nice. I've actually never had any Claret before. Yeah. Well, he's definitely trying to stick to the Rhone varietals. There, we have like one row, not even a row of, oddly enough, Petit Verdot. Which I think Eric tries to make into a barrel over at Page Springs. Um, he did, and it was actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah interesting though. I mean, it has a. Petit, I've never had a Petit Verdot that's got that spice character that it has. But you know, Calibri reminds me of um, some great northern Rhone vineyards. It's pretty much all granite, you know. And I've always had a love affair with Calibri. I've personally, for Burning Tree, I've been making wines from that site since 2009. That's right. That was your 90 pointer. Yeah, oh no, 2010 was the 90. But I made the dragon from that site, and I kind of, I told myself I would never make the dragon unless it comes from that vineyard because it's so site specific. Um, but you know, we made we made some dragon last year, so we're excited for that to come out for Burning Tree. Um, Ooh, when's that gonna happen? Uh, well, it's been in barrel for about a year, and we'll probably sit on it for another six to ten months, probably right before harvest next year. Give it as much time as possible. After we're done here, I'll, if you want to pull a sample, you taste oh, that'd it. That would be great. Sure. Tune in next week for the yes. Cellar Dwellers Burning Tree Edition. Hour. <laughs> Same bat channel. Same bat. Well, different bat time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. 
So in your opinions, um, what is the easiest fruit to work with in Arizona? What is the hardest to work with? I think it's, I think it's vintage specific. Um, I don't know. I, I think uh, you can have curveballs anytime. I think Malvasia is always strong when, when it comes to quality that comes in. Um, our last year was a great Bordeaux vintage, um, but that's not always the case. You know, it's hit or miss. So. Zin has always been a troubled child. Yeah, in state. Zin doesn't do well. We, we don't see a lot of it here, but you know, past experiences with cellar dwellers and um, Page Springs, we've always had a difficult time with Zin. Even at Bonita Springs, there was a bunch of Zin planted there that we um, Arizona Stronghold predominantly used for their pink here. Um, so I think that's being all ripped out as well. Yeah, I think some Petit Verdot and I um, love Arizona. So, well, that's going to be interesting. Is that's going to totally change the factor of the data yeah. in years to come with no Zen. Yeah. Well, I think I think we're going in more of a direction like we did last year, and that's basically having a white base with a little bit of red in. Because I mean, the Zen every year was just it had to be it was bunch. It had to be yeah. picked early, mm-hmm. you know, and then it just it had to be what it was. So, I think so, um, troubled troubled child. I think Grenache is interesting. I think it's always light and feminine, almost Pinot-like. Uh, and I think if you do it right, I think it's awesome. I think some years we could use more color. We've been experimenting with some partial cluster fermentation and different yeast and extended macerations and you know cold soaks and stuff to try to get the color up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I noticed that when I was bottling last week at Page Springs and I got Grenache Day. Yeah, um, so it's not a bad day. It's not a bad day at all. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a fun podcast. Just I can just do... Here's Grenache from Calibri versus another Grenache from Calibri versus another Grenache from Calibri. Right, they do. Yeah, that's Eric's. Versus House Mountain versus Estate versus Estate on Oak versus all these things. Right, yeah. Arizona Oak. Fermented at noon. Fermented (laughs) at one. Yeah, they do a lot. But it was interesting because, you know, they poured a sample and, you know, we got to try and spit out each one. It was just interesting, the color differences and flavor profile, even within, like, Here's partial whole cluster from Calibri versus a no whole cluster from Calibri. Yeah. Here's all the rest of the Calibri fruit versus this is from the top of the block versus mm-hmm. yeah. all the stuff. And it, it also gets you to realize that there's actually a lot of variability in a given vineyard within oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tawar there, not just from one vineyard to the next, but in subsets of Tawar. And, oh, yeah. I mean, you guys explored that with Malvasia last year with the Norte and the Nuevo and then the mid-block. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think every... Every pick, block, all that stuff's different. I mean, we see, we when we do our Bordeaux here, we do generally one to four, one to five yeah. different picks in the same block. We did five, five picks a cab this last harvest. So. I mean, it's the same block and everything. You see differences, you know. I mean, we want stuff with more structure and green characters that are more, you know, reminiscent of, you know, a cooler climate cab or a Bordeaux. And then we do stuff that we're trying to, you know, punch you in the face with some booze and, and, and you know, sugars and stuff. I mean, no sugar in the wine, but just yeah. monstrous cabs, you know, mouthfeel, rich. The Lozen especially is, is definitely big and bold. Well, it's more like a Bordeaux Bordeaux versus a California Bordeaux. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, well, I, I like it. Yeah, a little bit more old world. and Yeah, you know, we're definitely going old world with the, the Lozen. I think that's kind of like our right bank kind of homage, you know, definitely Bordeaux-ish. Definitely has structure, and that's what we're going for with the lows. And but we made some cabs this year, like the pick four press wine. We made one barrel of for stronghold, and it's just ridiculous 
just hedonistic, rich. I think it finished out calls like 15-4. It's mm-hmm. definitely one of the biggest. That's huge Arizona for Arizona. Counts. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, but that's The only one I've ever cool. seen that was yeah. stronger was uh, the Zodiac's in that Joao Marcus produced, and that was like 16-5. Yeah. Something not just really mm-hmm. ridiculous and huge like that. And the pick five, we um, trying our hands at a port, and we have that in the probably age for the next four four years or so. Are you like actually turning some into brandy, or are you using brandy uh, we, from Columbard? Or? We, used we used some brandy, brandy from, from Columbard, and we... Uh, I don't think it was from Columbard. No? It was from Pinot Gris. Oh, really? Yeah, we had some leftover Pinot Gris from the oh, okay. 13 vintage that we got distilled, and I think that's what we used in that. Anyway, that's how we arrested the fermentation with, uh, with the brandy flooded it into the tank and uh that'd be fun to try yeah when is that coming out um right now it's kind of like jet fuel so yeah, I think it's, yeah. yeah yeah it's about right for yeah a yeah port. yeah or it so should we'll be see. about I mean, right for a mm-hmm. port. if we don't drink it all in the next three years we might release some there's quite a bit there's Four like six barrels, barrels yeah there. so we, we should be okay well uh, if you go through a glass a day hmm we don't. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah, even then. When you live in the winery, you, know, you can't. I mean, you, you taste every day, but all you really, really want is a cold coffee. Modelo. Yeah, cold beer, maybe a <laughs> shot of whiskey or something. It's like that old proverb it takes a lot of good beer to make good wine. Oh, yeah. Good. I mean, every year I get a, a bottle or two of Del Maguey Mezcal just to get through harvest. So there's always something to nip on after the 16 hour day. Reminds me, all three of us are also in Happy Hour in the Winchester. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you should post some shit, man. Yeah, I should. <laughs> I'll definitely post this in there. I should. All right, you want to go to the next one? Yeah. All right, so here we have uh, a pick one Merlot, going back to the different picks we do at Bonita Springs. Uh, this is the first pick, which I thought was the best pick out of the Merlots. It kind of happened before the rains, so it's got great concentration but relatively low alcohol. And don't ask me what that is because I don't know off the top of my head. I just know relatively low. Um, but classic Merlot, and this really speaks to, uh, I think this really speaks to the strength of the 14 vintage for Bordeaux. So, you know, Arizona Stronghold fans out there, um, if I was a buyer for 14 vintage, I would buy. Merlots, cabs, those kind of things. I think Bonita just killed it for Burdos. The most concentrated uh, Merlots and cabs I've ever seen from Arizona. Burdos. Burdo? Bird-os. Bird-os? <laughs> no, I agree with you 100% on that. Uh, the, Ooh. the only Bordeaux grapes I saw that came in personally while I was down in Crush for Passion um, was Merlot coming from Crop Circle. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, not Crop Circle anymore. Rolling View. Rolling View. Yeah. Of course, I have it. I work in Echo Canyon sometimes. It's all right. We all call the old vineyards their old names. I mean, <laughs> shit just changes. But, uh, We're going to have Trump Vineyard soon. Trump? I'm just fucking. going to be like, Great. My grapes are golden. Anyway. <laughs> this wine has a toupee. Right. Mm. And a pompous attitude. Of course. So this is a hundred percent Merlot. Neat stuff. But anyway, classic, yeah. classic Merlot. That Merlot that came in was some of the most beautiful grapes I've ever seen. Like classic textbook, stereotypical, just perfect. Picture, like perfect. picture perfect, like marbles. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean the the Bordeaux this year. I mean, like the cab had the, the cab off 
Bonita have that neat, small berry, you know, reddish brown stems, kind of that iridescent blue color. Like, it was, like, beautiful. Yeah, it was great. And I've never seen cab like that off Arizona. Usually a lot of cabs and Merlots we make tend to be lighter. Yeah. You know, and that's just the way it is. But Bonita just came in as just, like, great concentration. Why do you think Arizona Bordeaux are so much lighter than Bordeaux? Uh, I don't know. I think maybe it might have to do with the way we, we, we have relatively... Uh, long, longer growing season. It might just be the amount of sun that it sees. I don't know if you know. I don't know if there's a relationship with, between. I'm sure there is between UVs and uh, anthocyanin production, you know, and pigments and stuff. But I don't know. I think maybe sunlight has to do with most of it, in my opinion. Um, you know, but yeah. I, I still think we're. And I say this all the time about Arizona. I still think Arizona is kind of the the proverbial toddler banging his head on the coffee table. And I think I think we're getting better every year. We're learning new things every year. I mean, we're opening up canopies. We're, you know, dropping the right amount of fruit. We're learning what works best in certain vineyards. We're pulling things that aren't working well. Um, and I think it's going to take a good 20 or 30 years to really hit our stride and really get, in, get into our groove of what really works well. I mean, Historically, Arizona's kind of been the Wild West, and people come out here and they plant, they planted whatever they want, you know. And there's, mm-hmm. and there's Pinot Noir, and there's Riesling, and there's all these things that don't necessarily do well here. They don't do well in the South, but um, yeah. I'd like to see what Riesling would do in Chino Valley. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I think I think it's just we're even kind of in between here and Flagstaff, you know. But I mean, but that, that just somewhere a little higher elevation, or but that thought process has been what it's been for you know, 40 years in Arizona. And so it takes time to really learn what works well. So I think we're learning that. And I just think over time we're going to find the right Riesling spots or we're going to find the right Pinot spots. And I think we're starting to to real na- really nail our, you know, classic varietals. And I, I think every year Arizona wines are just going to get better and better and it's just a matter of time. It's just something that I've noticed too since I've been reading them since I turned 22. Well, okay, I had a... Coca-Cola Winery, Giverts Jaminer for my 21st birthday. And Wasn't Mar- uh, Winerita? No, <laughs> no, I had good taste when I was turning 21. <laughs> I had good taste from when I started drinking. But that wine was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and it set me off of Arizona wine for a whole year, and it set me off of Giverts Jaminer as a grape for about seven. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think Amazing. I think. <laughs> Amazing what a bad wine can do. Oh, yeah. I think you have people that are taking it seriously and you have people that don't, you know. I mean, but that's like every industry, you know. I mean, um, I think for the most part, the quality of Arizona wines has risen a lot. And I think it's just, I think it's just the beginning. We get more people in here. We get, we get the, uh, you know, the support from the college and the viticulture program and all those things that are going on. I I think the sky's the limit for Arizona. It's just going to get stronger and stronger. Interesting fact that the Cocopelli Vineyard actually is... No, the Springs. Springs vineyard. Huh. So the Gewurztraminer that I drank that made me cry mm-hmm. is making is you that. cry for joy now. Same Gewurztraminer. <laughs> well, I'll be goddamn. Yeah. <laughs> according, but, to, yeah. according to legend, they used to just harvest everything at the same time, regardless of everything. Anything. You, you can't do that. They, That's... they would just bring in a mechanical harvester and oh my God. go down the rows and... Make wine. Like I said, things are getting better. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. So no wonder their wines are horrible. Of course, now they're getting all their fruit from New Mexico. So mm-hmm. yeah, if they even exist, I haven't 
really seen anything. Yeah, I see them at festivals every once in a while. I've never had a Coca Cola wine in my life. My advice to you as the wine monk is don't. Okay. <laughs> I worry about it. <laughs> Sorry, Coca <Coca-Pelli>. Cola. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> You know, it just is what it is. You know, I don't want to talk crap on anybody. Everyone, but there's a niche for that. You know, there's people that don't like, you know, structured wines or serious wines. There's people that like those sweet, fruity wines. There's a market for that. You know, it's just we just try to fit the market and we try to make the wines that we like to drink, and that's what it comes down to. So if other people are getting what we're putting out there, I think narcissist, not to sound narcissistic or pig-headed like a lot of people think that I am but (laughs) (laughs) what it comes down to is like I I really think you know from an individual standpoint and my standpoint is that I try to make and we try to make the best wine that we like and you know what we like is a very um, singular view and there's a lot of different views out there and, and we just try to make classic wines that are representative of our home and uh and you know, there's. I think I think we're getting better and better at it. It's just you know, it just takes time and patience and um, a bit of good luck and whiskey. <laughs> so, what's your favorite wine that you've ever made? Personally, yes. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I have certain favorites. It's like asking, who's your favorite kid? You know, I mean, there's <laughs> there's a lot of. There, I've, I've had some shitheads for wines. And kids, but uh, no, my kids are pretty good. But no, I, I think um, I don't know that first Muse I made that was only like fucking twenty cases was really good. I think the uh, 09 Dragon, the first Imavedra based Chateau Neuf blend I made was excellent. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I think the Spanish Spring stuff I made from California that. Uh, I'm selling right now in the tasting room. The Saran Grenache are probably the two best wines I've been part of. Um, just because of the fact that they're so concentrated. I mean, I love wines that are super rich and super concentrated, but still have a shit ton of acid. And um, those two definitely embody that. They come from a vineyard less than a mile from the ocean. So we got like 25 and a half, 26 bricks, but the pHs were like 3.3 and the the Grenache is almost black, so I mean, it's just... Yeah, it's the darkest Grenache I think I've ever seen. Yeah, it's just, it's so interesting. I mean, it, it, you know, there's certain things you bring in the cellar, it's just like, you know, wa- there's certain wines you make, and there's certain wines you try not to fuck up, you know, and, and those were already kind of predetermined what they were going to be. I mean, the aromatics just coming off the ferments and those kind of things, just like, okay, I'm not going to... We're not going to do anything too crazy with this. It's pretty straightforward. And I think the best wines kind of make themselves. Make themselves, you know, with, with... And we're very minimalistic in our approach to winemaking. We, we you know, we, we don't lose, use too much oak. We don't try to do too many things to it. Because, um, you know, I think I think the the best wines really reflect with, with where they're grown, not necessarily what what we do to them. I mean, we're, I think... Uh, Eric's philosophy, and I think it's imparted on us in some senses. You know, we're kind of shepherds to what Mother Nature gives us, and we're just trying to project that to the finished product and not necessarily trying to impart our handprint in the process. What about you, John? You know, I've been a part of a lot of really, really great wines, some really special wines. Um, for me, I think the Tarantula Hawk, the Cellar Dwellers, Tarantula Hawk, you know, was my first wine I ever made before I even really knew anything and then 
it was a challenge, you know, it was difficult and had weird numbers and it was just <laughs> I remember that a one. bastard. I, I didn't know what to do with it, you know. It's like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. It ended up being great, you know. And then, you know, that, that wine has a history of having problems. I remember the 2011 vintage, I just hated it. I thought it was the worst thing to ever happen to wine. And ended up being one of our best sellers and people loved it so it's That's a good zen. yeah and it's, I and it's hard to like zen, yeah so. and you know i think a lot of that stemmed from how it fermented and some of the smells that i got from it and but you know who the hell am i to you know right. know what a good wine is really i know what i like and that's all that really matters. Is yeah. That's what I tell people in the tasting yeah. room is, you know, I'm not going to tell you, you know, sure, I'll pour you my five favorites if you want me to. Yeah. But really what matters is not my palate. What matters right, right now is your palate. So if you don't know your palate, let's try a little of everything. Yeah. Let's right. nail it down. Let's use this as a learning experience. Let's yeah, let's steer you to what you like. You know, instead of like, well, I know cab and I can pronounce it. <laughs> um, let's go, no, 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 try, try this Viognier, no, Viognier. <laughs> right. Viognier, hard yeah, to I, say. I think, uh, the first I mean, but you know, going back to like, I don't, personally, I don't like Petite Syrah. I've never been a fan of Petite Syrah, but yet I make several wines that are Petite Syrah prevalent, and because I know fucking people go, you know, girls drop panties over Petite Syrah, so I... I've not seen some. any in the tasting room happen, but then again, we don't have anything with Petite Syrah, so... I try. Therein lies a problem. Yeah. No, I, I just think I just think you have to uh, in our shoes. You know, like I personally don't like Malvasia, which is probably <gasps> sacrilegious <laughs> to you. But you know, a lot of people be like, "Oh, it's so floral and beautiful," and I'm like, "Oh, it smells like soap." Or you know, I mean, everyone has their, you know. But I love Malmsey and I love like aged Madeiras and stuff. And I've actually drinking Malvasias blind that are aged a while, and I actually kind of dig them. And so it's just. You know, you, you can't really just make wine for yourself. You have to respect every varietal and try to make it as uh, as pure as you can, really, and, and reflective of what the varietal is. You know, traditionally in both, you know, we're not trying to do too crazy of stuff, you know, like mixing Petite and Malvasia or... That would be... Wait, weird. I think I've done that. Oh, shit. It's <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of Malvasia, maybe, but, you know, it's just... Um, there's guidelines we follow for sure. Yeah, I also think in Arizona, you know, there's not too many rules. You know, I just I was at the uh, wine symposium trade show in California, and I was talking to some hotshot winemaker from Napa or something. I was telling him what was in some blend. I don't even remember what it was, but he he gasped at me like, "You can't! You're not supposed to do that." <laughs> I'm like, "Well, who says?" <laughs> Why, why and not? The tradition in Europe always been blends, more or less, anyway. Yeah, I was like, it's great. Yeah, yeah well, the tradition in, you know, we don't have DOCG laws, yeah. mostly in the United States. I mean, for the most part, the U.S. is kind of the Wild West, but everyone falls in there. You know, certain AVAs now have rules, and, yeah. you know, certain, there's no rules in Arizona. We can do whatever the hell we want. Not even in Sonoida, as far as I'm aware. Mm -mm. Yeah. Well, I think there's AVA rules. But aside from the AVA rules, I mean, there's not like you must only grow this varietal. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. no. But you know, like that. but there's there's people out there. I think even now that are trying to get certain things passed. But the problem is, is that 
people grow so many different fucking things. I mean, how many varietals are grown here? Probably well over a hundred yeah. in Arizona. So there's, at least. there's no at such least. thing. There's no such thing as defining. Ninety-eight of those are at John McLaughlin's vineyard. Right. <laughs> but there's no there's no such thing as defining True. saying. <laughs> You know, I think people have tried to say, oh, Rhone varietals are kind of what Arizona is known for. No, because you've got Sangiovese, which does great here, which yeah. is not a Rhone. Yeah. No, I mean, there's Italian varietals that do re- well. There's Rhone varietals. There's Bordeaux varietals. I mean, I think a lot of things are doing well. Um, but it, I don't think it defines us, you know. I think, that, I think in the long run, if any definitions of grapes are going to be set forth in Arizona, it's going to be... These are the ten reds that do great, and they're from all over. And these are the ten whites that do great, and they're from all over. And Chino Valley will have a different list than Sonoida, and we'll have a different mm-hmm. list from the Chiricalas, and we'll have a different right. list from Wilcox Bench on right. either side of the bench, whether yeah. it's Benita Springs or, say, where Rolling View is. Yeah, I think, I think it's all, like I was saying, it's all going to take 25, 30 years to really define those those boundaries and define those varietals. And I think a lot of it has to do with just people being stubborn and planting what they want and pushing what they want to grow. And I think it's just... Admittedly, I have my own agenda on that. Right. But I mean, but it is just... Everyone everyone does, including myself. Which actually, that leads to a great question. If you had a dream vineyard, 10 acres, say, and you could plant whatever the hell you wanted, what would you plant? Depends on where it is. I'm, I'm a site-specific dude. Okay. Um, assume... Right next door to Calibri? Yeah. Right next to Calibri. Um, Mavedra, Syrah, <laughs> Grenache, um, Marsan. I don't know, Viognier is kind of tough up there. But uh, that would probably be my... That'd probably be it. Maybe a little petite, but that'd probably be all. Um, I'd really like to see more Malbec grown in this state. I don't think a lot of people have experimented. I mean, we see a little bit here and there. I think there's like one row at Benita. We planted more this year. Yeah, and there's a there's little. Deep I think Sky, which planted Deep Sky, and that. You no know, passion's yeah. getting fruit from there. Yeah, this Deep year. Sky Malbec was one of my favorites of the whole vintage last year. It was pretty strong. And uh, I just think there should be more of that. I mean, we're high elevation. We're in a similar kind of climate as Argentina, diurnal shifts, you know, I mean, it's, it should play nice. Yeah. Although we have more rains. Yeah. But, you know, that's one wild card to think of. Mm -hmm. For me, I really want to see some Georgian varietals come in. That'd be neat. um, Saparavi, Mishketnin, Mitzvani, and Kisli, and there's another red that even I can't pronounce. It's like Rick. Or something ridiculous. Sounds like a fucking Greek menu or yeah, something. What'd you call me? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although, speaking of Greek varietals, I think Xenomavra would be great up in Calibri because that is a grape that gets flavor changes and elevation shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's known for that in Greece. Higher elevation tends to be spicier. And, what do you think uh, of Nero Muscalese? I'm not a fan. No? Um, the, well, the one I had, I mean, admittedly, it came from in midsummer from wine still sold out, so it may have gotten a little baked in the heat. Mm-hmm. All right. But uh, it was not uh, a wine that I was particularly fond of. Fond of. I mean, was I'll it give off, everything. Was it off Etna? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. The ones I've had, I mean, uh, a friend of mine shared some with me, and they. I've never had reds 
from other parts of the world that reminded me of Arizona like those particular wines did. And I had a, you know, it was like a, a horizontal. It was like seven different wines from the same vintage. Huh. And I was just like, whoa, that is just like so dusty spice, red fruit, tons of structure. And now I think mine for sure was baked because mine was overly simplistic and light. Stewed tomatoes. Like, yeah. Weird. But maybe yeah. it just wasn't a good example. I mean, everyone makes shit for the wrong reasons, but... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I have li- a list of grapes that I will never ever taste again. I have some that I think I had bad bottles that I would like to explore again and so on and so forth. Yeah, but well, that's the beautiful thing about wine. I think you can never... I never feel comfortable judging things to a point. Like, I know the fucking five minutes ago I just said I don't like Malvasia, but in all truth, there's some that have knocked my socks off, you know? So it's just... I, I think that uh, it all depends on what you do with it, really, and what what defines the grape. Yeah, but I, you know, I like Zenomavro, and I was drinking recently the Lawrence Dunham uh, 2012 Syrah, and my first thought was like, when did the Syrah become a Zenomavro? Because mm-hmm. it tasted a lot like the Zenomavros I've had coming from Melusa in Greece. Um, and I was just like, that's interesting. I wonder what that grape would do here. Um, but my dream vineyard, um, either would be in the south near the Chiricahuas, you know, far away from everything where I can just li- also have like a small farm and just live off that and, you know, shoot people that came in too close. Grow weed. Um, eh, not so much weed. <laughs> that's my dream. Takes way too yeah, that's my dream. <laughs> you took that out of my dream. <laughs> Takes too much water. Sure, pole in one block and, yeah, sure. But, you know, I would do uh, Georgian varietals, I would do these Georgian grapes, and then a f- just a few other wild cards from Rhone and Greece and stuff, just to see what the hell, why not, mm-hmm. you know, if money was no object and everything. Oh, money's no object. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when uh, thinking of planting a vineyard, money if, is an object. Yeah, <laughs> this is, you know, why I say, if money yeah, is I, no I, object. I want to plant a vineyard, but I'm not going to wait till I have the, the capital to plant 30 or 40 acres, because... Owning a vineyard is yeah. expensive. You gotta make the money, you know. So this is our uh, in the cellar. We affectionately call this the panty dropper. Uh, we um, muscat from Bonita Springs Vineyard. We only got like about a ton. I want to say about a ton in, and it was interesting because it was regrafted. This this uh, muscat was regrafted in Malvasia, but the muscat kind of pushed through those grafts. So there's a little bit of Malvasia in this. I'm talking probably less than five percent that represents it. No one really knows. the plants. Yeah, it's Muscat for the most part. But Muscat uh, of Alexandria or Muscat Canelli? I don't know. Canelli, I believe. I like cannolis. Um, <laughs> so we did this a little different. A lot of times, you know, I, I I've kind of not been a fan of people trying to make dessert wine in Arizona just because uh, we just don't have the acid here. It's just too hot. Um, this came in about 23 and a half bricks, so not super ripe, but it had great acidity. And, you know, we've tried different formats for dessert winemaking, you know, Vin de Pie styles where we draw them on straw, which you lose a shit ton of volume wise. Um, but this particular wine, we used a, a relatively cold sensitive yeast. And then once we got the sugar around where we wanted it, it was around 11 bricks, I think, and we just jacked the tank down to like 30 degrees and once the fermentation stopped then we ran it through sterile or pretty much EK filtration and that uh, and then we dropped the lid on it hit it with SO2 and it's been sitting there and we were, we were 
pilfering it for like two months, just drinking a lot of it every time someone came in. Uh, but for me, it just it just has a, a more acid and structure than most dessert wines I've had. Um, yeah, there's a lot of complexity here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's only nine percent um, alcohol, but a ton of acid um, and quite a bit of sugar too. I want to say the sugar is around eight percent. Mm-hmm. It's delicious. Yeah, it's ageable too, and that's what I love about this wine. I, Honeysuckle right. and honey and honey. Some more honey. Some lemon. Lemon. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> well, there is a little bit of citrus. Yeah, absolutely. No, but the, like I did a, um, I stepped in for Eric and did a wine dinner at the um, uh, Culinary Institute, the Arizona Culinary Institute in Scottsdale, and we just bottled this about three weeks before that, and they did this dessert pairing with this wine. It was one of the best pairings I've ever had in my life. I was just like, oh my God, that's... What was it? It was crazy. It was like um, it was like this butterscotch puree kind of cream sauce. There was a little bit of an apricot, black cherry chutney. Uh, there was some honey. There was like this pecan uh, caramel shell crunchy thing. They made a gratis with the wine where they actually put in a blast freezer and they... They made a sorbet out of the wine itself, and that was what? in this cup. And then they had this this little like kind of Mexican wood, you know, cookie thing. It was like a powdered sugar cookie thing. And then they had these really ripe, perfectly ripe, rich black mission figs that they dipped in this caramelized like hmm. sugared candy, like it was like burnt candy. And then they made these huge long teardrops out of these figs. So it was like a candy coated fig. You bite into it, it's all crunchy. Almost like the crunch on like a like a creme brulee topping. No, it, it was like the best dessert ever. And then this pairing, it just like played so well. And and for for me, I, and I think that's true for all of us. We try to make wines that are good with food. I mean, we're very much foodies. You know, if I didn't work here, I'd probably be like four hundred pounds. Um, <laughs> but this wine it does that because it has it, the problem with making wine, sweet wines in warm climates, and. This is a rare window. We had the opportunity to do it this year, but for the most part, you run into um, not having enough acid, and the wines come across as cloying and almost syrupy and thick. Um, and this year, we just we were able to do it. I, I think most years we won't be able to, just because it, it just doesn't have the acid. And you can sit there and add a bunch of acid to the wine or tartaric acid, but it comes across as like a sweet tart. You know, it yeah. just doesn't work. Or sugar, you know, and I think the natural sugars of the grape really yeah. stand out in this wine to me. Because this isn't added post-fermentation yeah. and as an afterthought, oh, we're going to make a sweet wine and add four bags of sugar. This is, you know, the actual... I've been around sugars. several sweet wines. I think this is the best example. Now, this is one of, if not the best example I think I've had from Arizona. Mm. Sweet Liza is pretty nice, too. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's just got that great. It's a balance. I get for me. It's like if you're gonna have sugar, you gotta have acid, and this has a shit ton of acid. So it's just nice, citrusy, and yum yum. We still have to work, John. What are we doing? No, we don't. All right, we could stop. Well, I guess we could do the last questions. Sure. Yeah. Or not, I don't care. This is funner than cleaning stuff. <laughs> no, let's pull some more samples. Yeah, let's go, take, let's go in the barrel room and just grab that mic. Let's do it. 
Well, this is this is what it's like working in the winery, I guess. You know, sometimes it, it's funner than not, but it depends on time of year. If you were a grape, this is a question I ask almost everybody. <laughs> if you were a grape, what grape would you be and why? Oh, Jesus. John? <laughs> uh... Let me think about that for a minute. Over. I was a single grape. Varietal, obviously. Yes. Hmm. My name would be Chauncey. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be a beautiful grape. Yes. I'd be the small one at the bottom. Bitter um, on the outside and sweet on the inside. I'm going to say Mavedra. Okay. Why Mavedra? I don't know. Most people don't understand me. My girlfriend hates me. <laughs> kind of spicy around the edges. No one can say your name right. I'm not too colorful. <laughs> everyone, everyone fucks at my name. No, I don't know. I don't know. That's I mean, that's a weird question. So I was like, what kind of inanimate object are you? I'm a chair. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll save my bedroom because I think it's fun. I, I think it's. Uh, I don't know it's my favorite grape, so that's why I'm going with that one. All right. Um, I guess I'll say Zen. Because I'm out there. Everybody knows me. You don't like getting wet? I don't like getting wet. <laughs> I rot easily. My girlfriend's not a Zen. <laughs> my ex fiance is. Sorry. Sorry, podcast listeners. <laughs> That one's gonna go in the editing room for <laughs> or will it? Or will it? I'll give a fuck. I got no one to impress. I don't know. I've, and Zen was always my first wine I probably ever had, and it was the first one I ever made. Never fell in love with. No. So yeah, for me, my bedroom. A lot of people fun. don't like it. You know, I think it's kind of it's all it's definitely played out varietal too. So I don't know. It's I, yeah, I, I, I like my bedroom because a lot of people just don't get it in the bedroom. You know, it's just like. Why are you doing this, Corey? I don't know. Yeah. Free drinks. Free drinks. <laughs> well, on that note, gang, we're going to go have some fun in the barrel room. See. See. Thanks for having us. Thank yeah, you. Thank yeah, you guys for joining it. me today. No problem. And tasting some good wines. Can't wait to track some of these down in the tasting room. Until we meet again, ladies and gentlemen, this is Cody Vladimir Riquet with Tori. See, there I, I did your name wrong. Mavedra Turnbull. <laughs> Mavedra Turnbull and no, you gotta roll the R that's over. Mavedra. 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 What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> what are you saying to me? Or you could just be Spanish and call it Monstrel. I like Monstrel. But Mavedra, I hate. No. I like them all. <laughs> Alrighty, gang, until we meet again, this is Cody and the gang, signing off. Things got weird. <laughs> <laughs>